Hola, hola. That's good. Hello. We just we just moved uh, into a new place, so we have you know a bookshelf with no books in it. But I put up some old uh, some old chant stuff up there for I you. I could see something behind you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think most everyone will know who you are, at least the people that'll be listening to this. But do you want to just say a little bit about yourself and? Uh, what you've been doing your whole life. Okay. Um, okay, I'm Patrick Craig. I'm a countertenor. Um, I started singing when I was eight years old in Litchfield Cathedral as a little chorister. Um, and I ended up at Cambridge University as an organ scholar. And then I mutated into a singer and um, went to the Royal College of Music in London and Within a few years of leaving now, I got a job at St. Paul's Cathedral, singing in the choir there, where I've been now for 23 years as a countertenor, vicar call, we're called. Mm -hmm. We sing in the cathedral choir every day. And within a couple of years of that, I did my first concert with the Talis Scholars. Mm -hmm. And that was um, December 1996. And 20 years later, I did my last concert with the Telescholars, number 1,024. Oh, wow. Wow. And um, I sang for a few other groups in between, but that's sort of my main, my main bit of work, really. So when did you decide to sing alto or countertenor? Ah, oh, well, this is a good story. Yes. So um, yes. when I was a teenager, um, my voice didn't break very easily. It didn't really break at all, obviously. Um, so I thought my voice hadn't broken, and I carried on speaking in falsetto till I was 22. Wow. Which I do not recommend as a way of becoming a countertenor. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it meant that um, I sang for a whole of my teenage years at the same pitch that I spoke. And it's two octaves higher than what you're hearing now. So, and it wasn't until I was 20, at university. So up to twenty-two, you were speaking in, like, yeah, you were speaking in up here. Yeah, that kind of pitch. Yeah. Wow. And that's just what I thought my voice was. I didn't think I had any other option. And then while I was at university, I met a speech therapist because um, I was worried about my voice. You know, obviously at the age of twenty-two who told me that I could start speaking like this any day I felt like it. And I didn't realize that. So um, I decided to delay it a little bit. I, I went through the whole of university speaking two octaves higher than this. And then when I left, I decided to change it before I came to London and I <laughs> like this. But the good thing about that was that it meant that the countertenor range for me was always quite a familiar part of the voice to use to sing. That's the only part of the voice I've really used to sing. So there was a little advantage to that rather scary story. Right. Uh, <laughs> what was it like learning, learning how to speak uh, not in your countertenor voice? That was quite an interesting process. I went for two weeks of intensive speech therapy in Adam Brooks Hospital, which is an amazing hospital in Cambridge. And uh, every day I would go in and they'd make me say things in the new voice, it, find the new voice. It was sort of there once it was sort of, I realized where it was. But I did it, a lot of it by pitch. A lot of the work I did was by pitch. So she had this amazing machine that showed me the pitch that I was speaking. And I was able to use my sense of pitch, of you know, perfect pitch, yeah. to see 
when I that the, the two octave range that I was speaking in, and that sort of helped me. And to begin with, I went very low, and my friend who was with me said, "Oh, you sound you know sort of um, like some famous bass singer or something with a crazy low voice," and it was a bit much. So I, I was then able to over the two weeks decide what my speaking voice would be like, which is quite an unusual <laughs> thing yeah. you get to do. And, it just uh, took I, two weeks? Um, not completely to get completely used to it, but part of that two weeks was sort of going into shops and getting used to using my voice, ringing my parents in the new voice and sort of little tasks that I had to do when I wasn't in the speech therapy, sort of learning how to how to use the new voice, yeah. Wow. It was pretty quick, though. It was pretty quick, yeah. Wow. Um, now, so you... Do you ever sing in your speaking range, ever? Uh, well, that's another interesting question, because um, Peter Phillips uh, in the Talis Scholars yeah. uh, a couple of years ago said, Patrick, I, the, the alto parts that you sing in the Talis Scholars are very low, and I think that you should try and use your baritone voice more for the low notes. And I'd never done that. I'd always carried on going down in falsetto, and I felt that was a more joined-up voice. That was my singing voice so i then began to explore baritone voice and now these days i do use a little bit okay of, you know, vital moments <laughs> and, <laughs> but um in st paul's as well there's just certain times when it makes more sense to do that and it's not quite as bad as i thought in terms of the distance between yeah. the voices because i'm quite a low bass in my speaking voice, I think. So yeah. I think I, I'm not an easy transition between the two, but but it's better than I thought. So I do use it a bit. Yeah, that's that's cool. Um, do you feel like you have like a, a kind of a sudden gear shift when you engage that lower, or do you feel like you're, you've been kind of able to, to mix it? No, I'm not really a mixer there. I've got to make a, dis, a, decision, a decision to... This is it now. Off we go. We're in the baritone now. So no, I'm no no great magic blender. Okay. I think the best counter tenor voices for me are the ones that are natural tenors, and that they can then shift between on a much sort of smoother basis. Yes. But with me, it's a much lower voice, so it's it's either on or off. Yeah. So do you uh, do you get vocally tired? Um, one of the great things about singing with the Talis Scholars for 20 years is the, the stamina build-up, the sort of um, the, 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 the knowledge that you have about how to survive vocally, what taking in what you have to do um, and pacing yourself. And I don't get vocally tired very easily. I sort of, um, I think I get vocally sort of switched off a bit. If I go on holiday for a long time, I find it quite hard to get the voice back up and running afterwards. Mm -hmm. But in terms of hard work singing and doing a lot of singing, I do feel I've built up quite a a good level of stamina. Certainly for a counter tenor, it's just a slightly more fragile voice. And I think just because of the nature of the work we do with Tyler Scholars with the travel and the the, the workload, I, yeah. I do I don't have a lot of problems with stamina. Yeah, that's really I find that one of the most impressive things uh, that you that you guys have to do is, yeah. is just crank out concert after concert and just sing. Yeah, many, on a plane. Many hours, yeah, and uh, it must yeah. be brutal uh, on 
on the voice. But well, well, I, I'd like to get into you know touring, touring as a singer in a little bit. Um, do you you mentioned uh, perfect pitch? Is that something you you have? I didn't know that. Um, I, I don't call it perfect pitch. I call it relative pitch. I'm oh, pretty oh, okay. aware of where I am pitch wise all the time. Yeah, and that makes sight reading modern music and stuff like that a little bit easier for me. I think I read by by pitch. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not very good at intervals. If you gave me some advanced oral tests to do and said, sing a seventh, that's not really the way I read music. I read music by pitch. And I wouldn't put money on myself to always get every note right. So when people try and test me on this, hmm. uh, I, I don't call myself 100% reliable, but um, I'm pretty aware all the time of where I am pitch-wise. And I think that's it's just a very different way of singing and, and it means that when we transpose pieces or I'm singing at Baroque pitch, I'm having constantly to reread the music. Yeah. So I have to transpose it in wow. my sight um, in order to sing it, which is a bit annoying really. So <laughs> it has advantages and disadvantages. So you've been giving, given the task to give the opening notes for, for Talis scholars. How did you get that job? Um, yeah, I was handed that job on day one um, because Robert Jones before me, the counter before me, had given the notes. And I remember going to my singing teacher, Ashley Stafford, who had sung a lot with the Talis Scholars as well, um, quite soon after I started in Talis Scholars and said, I just think I need to have a bit of help with this. It's quite a, it's quite a big pressure vocally mm-hmm. to create these like perfect notes at the beginning of everything and not you know, have anything wrong with the voice. And he said it was ridiculous that the countertenor does that. The tenor has a much bigger range. Mm. The tenors should do should give the notes. It shouldn't be a countertenor job. He was very like angry about the fact that <laughs> this had landed on the countertenor. But I sort of embraced it and I sort of went with it and, and and I experimented with it quite a lot at the beginning in terms of how I would give the note. I know that some people think that notes should be hummed and not sung. Interesting. Um, but I, I'm all about making the note as clear as possible and distinct as possible. So I, what I used to do was to give the note on the vowel that I was about to start the piece as a vocal preparation wow. for what I was uh-huh. So if my first vowel was an R vowel, I would give the note on, on an R vowel. And I would say the concert would be quite interesting note-wise because every note would be a different vowel. And people <laughs> found it fascinating. I then decided that my oo vowels and my e vowels are my best vowels, and so I decided that I would give every note on an oo vowel, and that's what I've done ever since. And that that didn't take that long to settle down, but it's been quite a fun process. And because I've sort of got a bit of a reputation for doing that job quite well, yeah, I now do it for St Paul's Cathedral Choir and the Cardinals' music. So the number of notes that I've given over the years for all those groups is now rather enormous. Wow, <laughs> you you've given it i used to do a little bit of that for the tutor choir uh, yeah when i was singing alto and i you've was given that my it way fault? more thought than i have was that your fault well i you know saw so, you know sarah sharif showed up on the sea and i said well you should probably should have her do it you know yeah, there's no there you go that there's no this negotiating you know if if you've got to give a middle c you know that yeah could, that could be you know yeah i try to avoid scary. Low notes. I'll put it up the octave if I if I need to. I'm quite ruthless about what octave I'm going to sing in. It's going to be my choice. Uh, and so when do you go up? When... I lost some high notes, 
and I started giving notes an octave lower than I normally did. So I just do what I need to do to make the best possible sound. Uh-huh. Do you take the C up an octave? Uh, for the um, Pet Magnificat, which starts with the Sopranos <laughs> on an octave above, <laughs> I, I always try to aim to do that at their pitch because I think uh -huh. that makes that stuff much harder, for, much easier for them. Yeah. Um, but it, most of the time I would, <laughs> I would do the lower C, yeah. <laughs> That's really it's good. It's so nerdy. I love it. Yeah, that's good. What groups obsessed. are you singing for now? So the main job is still St. Paul's Cathedral, where we do even song uh, every day and three services on a Sunday. So that's where I've been today. And um, I'm still a regular member of the Cardinals Music, who did a concert in Smith Square the week before you came. With um, So we, we don't do as many concerts as Talent Scholars, but we are a regular recording group. We've just done a new spam disc on Hyperion. Uh, finishing our complete talis, uh, Latin talis. So that's seven discs with Cardinals music. Having done 13 discs of William Byrd beforehand, um, which which has been sort of my major recording thing that I've done in my career, which is the whole of Byrd and the whole of talis. So uh, do you do any courses too? Are you, are you on the... Yeah. yeah, more and more conducting amateur courses yeah for different organizations one called laycock singers uh, -huh. uh which does courses in europe sort of week-long in a nice place building up to a concert at the end of the week complete scratch choir uh, i'm working this year for another organization called run by singers which is a similar sort of thing and then i do one day type workshops for various organizations in england and stuff where i go off and prepare a theme day of singing yeah and scratch people up together I conduct a, an all-female choir which does even songs in cathedrals and we meet on the day and prepare the music during the day and then sing a service at the end of the day. So there's lots of different little bits and bobs like that that I'm doing now um, conducting-wise, which I've built up over the last nice. few so years. Nice. So is that a lot of that stuff happening just in Europe? Um, mostly in Europe, yes. I haven't done any of that on my own out and about. Over the years, I've done a lot of Talis Scholar courses in America, as you know, and and um, Australia. But um, no, most of the stuff I'm doing is in Europe. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe after this, you can give me some links if people want to, you know, look yeah, into look yeah. into okay. courses you'll be at. I rem I, yeah, I remember my first one in Oakham when you were there. Uh, I think two thousand. Yeah. I remember. 2000, me and Oren were there. We were a rowdy. Yeah. rowdy couple you know. yeah what, what did you think that was? i think 2000 or 2001 we went both years i think and right. uh uh i was yeah that. i think maybe you were there the second time because i think galane was there when i, when right, I was the right. first time right um yeah but it, i did courses with galane as well though so yeah we had a bit of overlap, oh cool yeah. good good so uh you've sung many many concerts on tour and that's probably not so talent scholars were hitting you know over a thousand but you do you have you do tour with other groups too i used to do quite a lot before talent scholars really took off for me i i did um touring with polyphony choir um which is stephen layton in england um a bit with the gabrielli consort a little bit with the 16 mm -hmm. um who else have i been abroad with well with st paul's obviously we've done some big tours um, but most of my touring has been with Talis Scholars. I think that's 
you know, the, the vast majority of my foreign singing has been with Taylor Swift. So, what is the hardest thing about touring so much? Um, worry about getting ill. Yeah. Um, it's just if the voice is working, um, and you're you've got reasonably nice circumstances that you're living in. You know, if the hotel is reasonably nice and the the flights are not awful that you're going via Timbuktu to get to John O'Groats down the road. Okay. It's it's fine. But if the voice is not, if you're not entirely well and the voice isn't working as you would want it to work, that's when touring gets hard. And that's that for me is the sort of prime aim is to just keep keep the machine working. Yeah. yeah. Um, have you have you? I mean, I assume you've gotten sick. You're just like any singer. Uh, what have you done to um, prepare yourself for a concert when you're sick? Oh, that, that's um, mainly not panic too much. Yeah. <laughs> it's more of a mental battle, really. Yeah. Um, steaming, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, when you get sick, does your voice, being careful. does your voice, what happens to your voice when you get sick? Does it shrink in range or? It varies, depends what kind of sick it is. I had a weird one last December where I just lost my top notes and I'm usually quite easy with my high notes and just a, a little ceiling came on my voice where I couldn't get above a sort of A natural. It was very yeah. strange. Um, so it just varies depending on the illness, but usually it just means it goes very low and producing the falsetto, getting the chords to to join up is a problem. It's that kind of weight of gunk on the chords. That's the worst kind of illness for yeah. me. If I can keep gunk in my head yeah. <laughs> and not let it sort of drop onto the voice, then I'm okay. You know, I imagine, I try to think about how long I would last touring. And, uh, you know, I, you, we, I'm, a, I'm away for a week or two weeks, you know, and, and I'm like, okay, well, I think, I think I'm good. I think I'm good now. <laughs> and then having to sing while, you know, while you're on this trip uh, would be, would be, because you can't, you know, you can't just party too hard. You have to, you have to behave no. yourself. And, and you do this on a, on a much larger scale. You have many concerts and you're doing a lot of the same programs, I think, probably with some variation a little bit. Do you ever, so I, I do you ever mentally get sick of the music, <laughs> singing the same thing over and over again? Yeah, no, I'm I'm really lucky with yeah. that. In that I I stumbled across a repertoire that I really love. So I didn't know about Renaissance music much before I joined the Taylor Scholars. I learned on the job, and I just happen. It just suits me that music. I I, I admire it and the quality of the 200 years of music that the Talis Scholars does is incredibly consistent. And Peter is very good at sort of varying the program. So we don't simply do the same program for a whole year. Um, we, we, we're constantly restarting with a new program. So for a tour, we will do the same program over yeah. and over again. But I actually enjoy that because, because we do so many different programs. I like repeating a program because I feel it gets better and better the more that we know it because we're not great at rehearsing. Yeah. 
we don't do a lot of rehearsals. So if we're on a tour, that is the only time that we repeat music mm. consistently, if you see what I mean. I mean, obviously we sing Allegri Miserere a lot and that's not the most thrilling piece to do over and over again because it's very yeah. repetitive. Um, but even that, there's something about that piece and the way that it speaks to an audience and watching an audience react to Amy Howarth, Jan Coxwell, Deborah Roberts singing the top C moment, mm. um, for me makes that an interesting piece. And I quite like having a bit of time off because you've got two choirs yeah. and that's quite rare in a concert that you can actually stop yeah. singing. So even that piece, which is the piece I've sung most often, I, I just didn't, I didn't ever really get bored of it. There were members of the group who would just get a little bit angry that we were doing the Allegri again. <laughs> and for me, I thankfully in my thousand and twenty-four gigs, I never got to that point where I was like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. And for no piece was that the case. So I'm, I'm really, I, even the modern stuff as well. So things like Arvo Pet, which for a long time we did that quite often. Uh, different pieces of Arvo Pear. I just thought it's this quality music. I don't mind singing yeah. this again. Um, it's 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 good stuff. Peter's quite selective about what he does, and I've I've been really lucky because I know that some groups. If I was in I don't know the King of Singers or something, and I was having to sing I'm a Train for the seven hundredth time, it might just wind <laughs> me up a little bit. But the quality of the music that I've sung repeatedly has been has been really yeah. good. Good, good. Um. Y'all get along when you tour? Yeah, it's um, it's part of the oh. job. Um, you know, it there's a there's a there's a an awareness that the best work comes out of the best atmosphere. Yeah. But Peter is quite a good judge of people, and so are my other employees. Andrew Carwood's a very good judge of um, character, and I I seem to find that I work with really nice people. Yeah. A lot of them are my best friends. A lot of them are the people that I socialize with when I'm not singing. Yeah. So, um, again, that hasn't been a problem for me. I've never had somebody I'm in the group with that I just wish I wasn't touring with or wasn't yeah. there. So um, it's been remarkably easy going on that point. And I think there is a, a, an element of it needs to be yeah. like that. Because if you use it together, you're going out on stage together. I know that some groups operate in a way that they just ignore each other for the rest of the time and just have to be apart. But I've always been the opposite. I'm so, I'm a team player. I want it to be a happy atmosphere. I want people to go out on stage together in a good frame of mind, and and that for me gets the best yeah. music. Yeah, yeah. I I've never been in a in a group where you know that toured so much, and I I just mentally imagine that that having. Um, a good relationship with your with your peers would be especially important in this you know while touring yeah um and i think if people do cause ripples on tour those people don't continue to yeah. tour uh, i think the people that stick around are the ones that make the situation a better situation yeah. so you know you might have a, a period where there's someone who's a bit problematic but it doesn't last because they don't get booked how do you get yourself on the on the current time zone do you just just are you sleeping when you're supposed to i force myself into it straight away yeah i'm not one of these people that tries to stay in english time and and uh, and ignore where i am it's it can be very difficult but i try and force myself hopefully with a long first day and then get really tired and then sleep at the right time the first yeah. night if i can do that 
the second night is the hardest night, but um, at least then I'm on some kind of routine. I try and force it straight away. Good, good. <clears throat> Quite yeah. hard. So uh, let me switch gears away from touring and talk about uh, how how you think the interest level is in Renaissance polyphony right now. Do you think uh, do you think the interest has grown? Um, do you think it's you know mostly just you know, interest is just over there in Europe? Um, do you find that U.S. groups have more U.S. groups have taken it on. What's your What's your pulse on the situation? Oh, I'm not sure. I think it's not changed hugely in the 20 years that I've been doing that repertoire, but it's remained pretty consistent. For instance, the amount of times we go to America with Talis Scholars has remained pretty consistent. There's been no sort of dips in interest mm -hmm. in what we do. I think there's a constant um interest in getting that music in certain environments we're talking you know the coasts yeah. of america especially those sort of liberally type cities that call that, that are up for this kind of thing in england i think the 16 have done some amazing work in england touring the cathedrals of england doing regular concerts what they call their pilgrimage that they do every year where they basically do renaissance music mm -hmm. um and they change the program year by year but basically it's the same program for a whole yeah. year and i think that has shown the consistency of them doing that has shown that there's there's an interest in that kind of music in yeah. england but i think it's talis scholars haven't done the majority of their concerts in england it's been it's not been the easiest environment for us to sing, but there's, we're, we're, we're a well-known group, so it, we get concerts and they, they're well yeah. attended, but I wouldn't say taken off in the 20 years I've been doing it. It's remained sort of quite mm -hmm. static in a good way. I mean, and the European concerts as well has remained quite static. We go to Japan every other year, that's remained quite regular. Agarasan, the agent there has done an amazing job keeping that consistent because it's such an alien culture there mm -hmm. in terms of them knowing what we do, but they still love it. They, there's a real thirst for it there. Does your government, sorry. We've, go gone in, uh, we've gone into China. That's been a more recent thing. Um, Australia sort of dipped. That was, that was a tricky one, but I think it's just remained very consistent. I wouldn't say it's taken off. What I said to Peter and the Talis scholars a few years ago was that I, thought the reputation of the group was so high in terms of the world of Renaissance music that the last, if Peter is going to just do 10 more years, say, as the director of the group, he should aim in the last 10 years to get it into the top concert halls of the world, into the top festivals. You know, we shouldn't be doing little churches yeah. in, in little nowhere places. We should be just aiming to get this music alongside the symphonies and the the choral works that are, are deemed to be the best music. Yeah. And I think that's that the Talis scholars could and should try and do more. I mean, I think they've they've done probably such a rare it's a rare thing. Yeah, I think they've probably though done the best work at getting getting that stuff on the main stage. I, I mean I don't know any other I agree. It is it's the best level. Yeah. But I I want 
the promoters and the big money music people to embrace that and to to try and up that that repertoire into the reputation of say a beethoven or a mozart or a high you know what i mean that kind of i don't think we've quite arrived with bird and talis of saying and and palestrina and victoria no i think i I agree of of them being where they should be yeah how is and if talis scholars can't do it i don't know who can how is uh the funding for music over there do you are they you know when you give a concert is it do you get money from the government to help present it or it's no yeah okay <laughs> there's nothing there's no arts the, it's called the arts council in england um that dole out money to arts organizations no money from the arts council goes to renaissance uh-huh. music the 16 don't get any we don't mm-hmm. get any the Gabrielli concert doesn't get, you know, it just doesn't go there. It goes to big orchestras, big concert halls, big opera companies. Um, the cathedrals don't get any, so they're doing quite a lot of Renaissance mm-hmm. music and they get no government money whatsoever. Really? It's all totally funded. And that's that's obviously part of the story of why we're not in that upper echelon. You know, it's just not recognised as something worthy of government money. So you said... Uh, the cathedrals don't get money from the government. Nothing, not a penny. Like Saint, even Saint Paul's. Well, we we charge people to come in. That's why we charge so much for people to come in during the day, tourists, because there's no other money. You have to maintain the building, and you have to maintain all the music that goes on from right. that money. There is no other money. So music groups really are surviving on, like ticket sales, and stuff like that. Yes, Alice Scholars relies entirely on ticket sales. There is, there is no... Um, quite a lot of music groups have um, charitable sides to them. They have foundations which raise money to support what they do. Uh-huh. So the 16 do a lot more of that. But Peter, in the Talis Scholars, doesn't want to have that sort of influence on his artistic decisions. That's his bottom line. Yeah. He doesn't want people telling him what to do musically. So he has managed, over the 40 years that he's done that group, to never have any other funding than the money made from doing concerts. This is why... Which is complete. It's a unique situation. Yeah, this is why... So when we were over there, um, surprising you, um, we ran into some younger singers that that Josh knew, um, and they were totally under the impression that you know, oh, you're from America, you know, you just get loads of money from donors and the government. And uh, sort of in comparison to you guys getting, you know, surviving on just what you what you're really selling, you know, on 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 your value, uh, I can see how they would come to that impression. I mean, we have a we have donors that get a little benefit, you know, when they give us money uh, yeah. uh, through our nonprofit system. But I don't think you guys have something like that. No, there's not the same tax benefits to giving to the arts in this country that there are in America. So um, there is money given to the arts. And places like the Royal Opera House have massive development departments that raise money for what they do. And and even the 16 have a a serious amount of that going on. But um, it's just weird that Taliscol as a group I've sung for has never really entered into that world at all. Do you have a best moment? In, t- in your Talis Scholar career? 
Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, I have quite a few best moments, but I'm not sure I've got one best yeah, moment. Yeah, just a few. Okay, let's start at the beginning. So the first big tour I did, was it the first big tour? Yeah, the first big tour I did was to Australia. And one of the first concerts I did on that tour was in the Sydney Opera House, singing the Victoria Requiem with Caroline Trevor on maternity leave, about to have Edmund Phillips, who you know now is 19 yeah. years old. Um, <laughs> and so I was the alto that did all the plain chant inch pits in the Victoria Requiem, all the opening little bits. Wow. I did it all. And that was one of my first gigs. And it was in a packed Sydney Opera House in that year the Sydney Opera House and the Melbourne Hamer Hall, which competed for how many people they could get in. So they had different organisations organising the concerts and they had a competition. So the Sydney Opera House was sold out. And then when we got to Hamer Hall in Melbourne, there were people on the stage in a little circle around us so that if we reached our hands out, we could touch the wow. audience. It got more people in their hall than Sydney had got in, in the Sydney Opera House. So it was it was such a buzzy tour that because the audiences were huge and we were doing Victoria Requiem in every concert and it just so happened that I was doing all the solo lines. How many people so that were was the there first, you think? Uh, it was over 3,000 in each one, I think. Wow. Yeah, that's similar to what St Paul's capacity is. So another highlight for me was the 40th anniversary concert in St Paul's Cathedral. Um, that was the 40th anniversary of the Talis Scholars and I helped to sort of organise that concert a little bit you know I just sort of tried to negotiate a little bit with St Paul's about having it there mm -hmm. and we we managed to pretty much sell out St Paul's and we needed to to make it pay because it cost a lot of money to have, have it in St Paul's yeah. and it was a bit of a concert and we did Speminalium and we had 40 singers and that was a big moment um, my the 25th anniversary of the Talis Scholars was a good year because we did this brand new John Tavener piece which needed a narrator uh -huh. and the first time we had Sting oh yes I heard about that in the National Gallery in London and it was in an art gallery and it was a very dramatic setting and Sting was there and we did Fields of Gold with Sting singing solo and we did backing singers to Sting Talis Scholars that was a very wacky gig I remember that very well and then we did that same piece again a couple of months later in New York with Paul McCartney as the reader and wow. that got a much bigger reaction there were people queuing around the block at St Ignatius Loyola wow. and um, and there were people holding banners like Paul we love you <laughs> it was not a typical Talis Scholar audience yeah. and there were loads of celebs backstage that he brought with him so every time we went off stage there was like Mia Farrow or somebody else was there backstage it was that was one of my favorite gigs wow what's the what's the largest audience you performed for you think it's about three thousand uh have we done any really huge yeah i think that's probably i think yeah that's sort of maximum concert hall yeah i think it's about that maybe three and a half yeah i'm constantly sort of don't believe that apparently from what I remember Peter telling me that you guys have never missed a concert because of a flight issue you've made all your well, yeah you've you've how how does that any close calls yeah well Sydney um Seattle was one we arrived a couple of hours late for a concert oh yes I was the there <laughs> yeah 
That was one of the worst ones of my time in terms of lateness and the audience staying. Uh, the worst one was in China on our first tour to China and the plane just died. It was an internal flight going to Guangzhou, which is their sort of second city. And um, the plane, China Airlines was just ancient and just didn't work at all. And we just thought we're not going to get there and we had to change planes. And we were, I think, three hours late, certainly yeah. two hours late. And we were snatched off the plane and straight into the concert hall. And they'd all waited, the entire audience, and that was about 3,000 people, had waited. Wow. They'd had a piano recite. Someone had gone out, the audience played the piano. <laughs> but they were so fascinated by what we do. There was no CDs in China at the time. Yeah. They hadn't played it on the radio. It was just like, this is happening, do you want to come? And 3,000 people came, and they waited three hours for us to get there. And we went straight on stage, no rehearsal did the gig and they went absolutely berserk so <laughs> the closest we've got to missing a gig um but apart from that we always somehow skin of our teeth make it are there any do people in china and these in japan do they do they have courses also do, are they interested in renaissance polyphony that much Peter goes out and uh, judges competitions in Japan. And we, when we first went to China, it's really hard to get a visa to go. It was um, more than 10 years ago now, and it was quite hard to get in. So the way we got in was to enter a competition. Uh -huh. So our first performance ever in China was as part of a competition. They didn't really tell us the singers that that was what was going on. Oh. We just went on stage, sang the Allegro Miserere, came off. And the next day um, we ended up in this big hall for an awards ceremony where they're announcing the winners and we didn't win the competition. Uh -huh. uh, somebody from Korea won the competition and we then got given a consolation prize because they heard we were quite famous. Uh -huh. And they gave us this consolation prize, which was very bizarre. That's so weird. But uh, that was sort of the way. So I think that's more the way that they try and emulate this kind of music through competitions and stuff like that. I'm not sure they have courses. Maybe they do, I, I don't know, yeah. but... Um, they have choirs that do this kind of music and try and do it the way that we do it. And it's it's quite interesting that. Yeah, I, I, I'm under the impression that, at least from what I've heard from Peter, that, that you have a consistent, um, you consistently get hired to go sing, you know, over there in Japan and other Asian countries. Yeah, yeah. Um, have you, I think you've been to the Philippines. Yeah. Have you been to the Philippines? Have you sung there? No, I don't think I have. That might have been before me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've done Korea. Yeah. Pan, China, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Hong Kong. Cool. Yeah. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk, pick your ear about CD, the CD industry. Um, yeah. We, uh, you know, you know, me and Josh do a lot of recording and, and yes. we, we're, you know, we feel, we feel that's very much what you do when you when you're performing nice to have a product to to sell it to your fans mm. um, you know a lot of us have been worried about this problem that you basically never make that money back um, yeah. and it and it's it's just feeling like a huge marketing cost um, have you thought about this um, and what are your what are your thoughts about you know you you're still in groups that's still committed to doing CDs um, do you feel like you know do you feel like you're maybe not gonna 
actually sell physical CDs, but just have digital sales. Um, I don't know. How do you feel that's going over there? I think I've lived under a little bit of a rock with this one for a while, but I've definitely seen over my 20 year career, a big, this is the biggest shift in what, what I've seen of the world that I sing in. So when I joined the Talis Scholars, I didn't make a recording for eight years because they had so many discs already in the can yeah. that they were waiting to release, that they couldn't make any more discs because it was at the top of the market and they were flooding the market with, with recordings. And it was all ready done and it was ready to go. So that was where I started. Mm -hmm. And then the Cardinals Music, which is the group that I've recorded with most, um, was making regular CDs for first ASV and then Hyperion. And it seemed to be rolling along very nicely. Mm -hmm. But I feel in the last few years that the whole thing has sort of ground to a bit of a halt. The yeah. sales have dropped enormously. The whole download thing has sort of made people reassess. Um, and I myself have my own group, which is an all-female group, which I've wanted to record with for the last 20 years. And I just haven't got round to it because I find this whole thing so stressful. I want to pay my singers <laughs> properly. You know, how do I justify spending the amount of money I need to spend to do it? Yeah. I, I'm going to do it. I need to do it. I'm now going to have time to do it. But um, it just seems like we've got to a situation where the whole thing of selling a CDs is just not really what, what it's about. It's about, having, as you say, having this marketing tool and, yeah. and sort of building the, the, the library as well. You know, Andrew Carwood very much got into his head that he wanted to make his mark with the recording by doing um, a bulk of things. So the entire William Byrd, the entire Thomas Tallis. Yeah. Um, so, so it's like that sort of a record for posterity. It's yeah. not really... Oh, people want to buy this. They want to have another Speminalium disc. It's more kind of, um, I think this needs to be recorded. And that's certainly how I feel with my women's choir, that a lot of the repertoire that we do, Sacred Music for Upper Voices, has not been recorded with professional choirs. Yeah. So um, I feel very strongly that I need to get on that horse, but it's not a horse that I personally have ridden. I've just managed to do a lot of recording without having to organize it so I, I haven't quite lived in the world that you've lived where you're trying to make the thing and sell the thing and yeah and I need to get into that world a bit and it's quite scary because it's it's not the world that I entered 20 years ago it's very different now yeah you don't have I know you don't have um really a benefit for donors to give you know just buttloads of money but do you have people that step forward anyway just because they care about what you're doing and they just go you know here, here's some money. Go do, go make some music with it. Or those people, those, you still got those people around, yeah? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I again because Peter's not been keen to do that, yeah. and Andrew Carwood similarly hasn't had time to do that. Gotcha. I haven't seen a lot of evidence of that. Uh -huh. There are a few people with the Cardinals music that that are very generous and that organise trustees and and dinners and things like that. And there's been a little bit of that, but with Taliscolors, there's been none of that. Yeah. And um, it's extremely rare that that money is sort of just floods into the system. It's just not how it's worked. Yeah. And I think I'm, I'm weird that I've worked for groups that have not really done that. I know that other groups are much more on this and that what you say is, is the situation, but I'm afraid I haven't really seen that. Yeah. 
I haven't seen it at St Paul's. You know, we don't get checks in the post saying your music's wonderful. Have have a hundred thousand pounds. I remember John Scott going to to New York mm-hmm. um, and starting at St Thomas's Fifth Avenue, having been at St Paul's for twenty years, and him saying that on the first week that he was there, he received a check for his music program, which was more than he ever saw wow. given in his entire time at St Paul's. Wow. So I do think there's a slight difference in the experience of that. I think this this isn't this is a a nut we'll have to crack. Um, you know, I think having figuring out a way to do see you know to get your music out there, it's a good way for people to measure, you know, your what you consider uh, your final product. You know, a polished product. Um, yeah. A lot of groups, including including us, uh, uh, post you know a lot of live stuff and a lot of yeah. sort of un unfinished. And I say that just just to say un you know CD produced quality yeah. stuff and people don't have to pay to listen to it you know they can just click on it on youtube and yeah and you know always wonder if i'm competing with the free version of myself all the time when i you know <laughs> when i post something like that i think you have to do that now yeah i think that's completely part of it and uh you know i remember when when video clips were were pretty helpful in getting attention um now those need to be super short and super interesting um, in order to get attention, yeah. Um, yeah, I just wonder where the where the future of this goes. I mean, our we we're in a in a place. So we have you know a nonprofit system, and we have um, donors, and uh, though most of our stuff is still ticket sales, and um, some yeah. some places in the middle of America, you know, these Midwest uh, choral institutions, they just I don't know they just have old money there that that's ready for you know more available for right. for groups down there um but over on the at least in seattle that's not that's not quite how it's going so it'll be mm-hmm. it's just a not yeah it'll be interesting to see how this all unfolds in the future it's yeah um, i'm gonna have to with this yeah well patrick uh, we're we're approaching our one hour mark I, did you want to include say anything else before we before we sign off it was so great to see you by the way and i'm and, and, and oh, in London, it was such. I know you were flooded with fans, but I, I we appreciate you know you spending time with us. Well, that was certainly one of my Talis Scholar highlights. That whole gig, <laughs> that final gig that I did, and it was very much you not being there made a huge difference to that. Oh. But I just had a really good selection of friends and supporters there, and it was a very spectacular moment for me. And I was so relieved to go out with my voice in working order and you know you I planned it a year in advance wow so um but to pull it off was was a huge relief to me and uh, I was very pleased that you were there good good it was really yeah it was our pleasure you sounded you sounded fantastic the title scholars did also as usual um well Thank you. thanks again Patrick and from your Seattle contingent fans uh um we love you, and uh, we're Patrick Ooh. fans all the way. Yeah. <laughs> Keep following AuroraNova.com, AuroraNovaChoir.com. Yes, Aurora. That's my website. That's my women's choir, and that's where you'll get sort of more news of what's going on new with Patrick Craig. I think that's the best best place. Perfect, and I'll, and I'll have that linked, and uh, yeah. let's see. I'll send you uh, Yeah, we, and, and let us know when you, if you guys manage to make it to Seattle. Yeah, we'd love to. Okay. 
Definitely. Okay, thanks so much, Patrick, and uh, I'll, hopefully I'll see you again soon. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. Take care. Okay, bye.